Chapter Seventeen of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zabrina Jazzainsworth. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Section Seventeen. The Summer. Encampment at Kuyunjik. Visitors. Mode of Life. Departure for the Mountains. Akra, rock tablets at Gunduk, district of Zibari, Namet Aga, district of Shewan, of Baradost, of Gerdi, of Shemdina, Mauser Bay, Nestorian Bishop, content of Mahananisha, Diza, an Albanian friend, Bashkala, Izet Pasha, a Jewish encampment, high mountain pass, Mahmudia, first view of one. The difficulties and a delay in crossing the Tigris, now swollen by the melting of the mountain snows, induced me to pitch my tents on the mound of Kolunjik, and to reside there with all my party, instead of daily passing to and fro in the rude ferry-boats to the ruins. The small European community at Mosul was increased in Dune by the arrival of a large party of travellers, two English gentlemen and their wives, who passed through on their way to Baghdad, the Honourable Mr. Walpole, who has since published an account of his adventures in the East, the Reverend Mr. Mallon, to whom I am indebted for many beautiful sketches, the Reverend Mr. Bowen, an English clergyman, on a tour of inspection to the Eastern churches, with whom I spent many agreeable and profitable hours amongst the ruins of Nineveh and Babylon, and his companion, Mr. Sandreski, were our visitors, and most of them were my guests. Our tents were pitched at the northern corner of Goyongi, the spring was now fast passing away. The heat became daily greater, the corn was cut, and the plains and hills put on their summer clothing of dull parched yellow. The pasture is withered, the tender herb faileth, the green herb is no more. It was the season, too, of the shergis, or burning winds from the south, which occasionally sweep over the face of the country, driving, in their short-lived fury, everything before them. Their coming was foretold by a sudden fall in the barometer, which rose again as soon as they had passed. At Nimrod, the excavations had been almost stopped. At Kolyunjuk, they were still carried on as actively as my means would permit. I was now occupied in moving and packing sculptures from both ruins. From Nimrod, the beautiful bas-relief of the king in the archered frame, described in the previous chapter, the good spirit driving out the evil principle, the fish-god, the colossal lion from the small temple, and several other interesting sculptures, were taken to the river-bank and sent on rafts to Basra. At Koyunjik, none of the slabs could be removed entire. I could only pack in fragments several of the bas-reliefs. The cases were dragged in carts to the Tigris, unloaded below the piers of the ancient bridge, and there placed on rafts prepared to receive them. During the day, when not otherwise occupied, I made drawings of the bas-reliefs discovered in the subterranean passages. My guests, choosing some convenient place underground near the parties who were at work, spread their carpets beneath the crumbling sculptures. We all went below soon after the sun had risen, and remained there without again seeking the open air, until it was far down in the western horizon. The temperature in the dark tunnels was cool and agreeable, nearly twenty degrees of Fahrenheit lower than that in the shade above, but I found it unwholesome, the sudden change in going in and out causing intermittent fever. After the sun had set, we dined outside the tents, and afterwards reclined on our carpets, 
to enjoy the cool, balmy air of an eastern night. We slept under the open sky, making our beds in the field. July had set in, and we were now in the eye of the summer. My companions had been unable to resist its heat. One by one we dropped off with fever. The doctor, after long suffering, had gone with Mr. Walpole to the cooler regions of the Kurdish hills, there to wait until the state of the excavations might enable me to join them. Mr. Cooper, too, had so much declined in health that I sent him to the convent of the Marmetti, on the summit of the Gabel Maclaube. Mr. Hornwood's Rassam and myself struggled on the longest, but at length we also gave way. Fortunately, our ague attacks did not coincide. We were prostrate alternate days, and were, therefore, able to take charge alternately of the works. By the 11th of July, I had sent to Basra the first collections of sculptures from Kuyunjik, and on that day, in the middle of the hot stage of fever and half delirious, I left Mosul for the mountains. While necessarily absent, I determined to visit those parts of central Kurdistan not yet explored by European travellers, to devote some days to the examination of the ruins and cuneiform inscriptions in and near the city of Wan, and then to return to Mosul through the unexplored uplands to the south of the Lake of Wan, and by such of the Nestorian valleys as I had not seen during my former journey in the mountains. I should then spend the hottest part of the summer in the cool regions of Kurdistan, and be again at Nineveh by September, when the heats begin to decline. As few European travellers can brave the perpendicular rays of an Assyrian sun, we struck our tents late in the afternoon, and got upon our horses at the foot of the mound of Kolunjik, as the sun went down. With me were Hormuzd, my old servants, and the faithful Bayraktar. Mr. Cooper was to join us on the following day, and we were to seek the doctor and Mr. Walpole at Akwa. Five hours' ride over the plain brought us to the small Turkoman village of Bir Hilan, the Well of Stone, which stands on the southeastern spur of the Maglob Hills. After two hours' rest, we continued our journey and crossed this spur before morning dawned. Leaving the Gabel Maglob, we descended into a broad plain, stretching from it to the first Kurdish range, and soon found ourselves on the banks of the Gazir. Here, a clear, sparkling stream clothed with tall oleanders, now bending under their rosy blossoms. We sought the shade of some spreading walnut trees during the heat of the day, near the small Kurdish village of Kaimawa. Here Mr. Cooper joined us, and we were again on our way in the afternoon. Instead of striking for the mountains by the direct path across the plain of Navkur, we rode along the foot of a range of low hills, forming its western boundary, to the large Kurdish village of Badarash. Having rested for a few hours, we descended in the middle of the night into a plain receiving the drainage of the surrounding highlands, and during the rainy season almost impassable from mud. Artificial mounds, the remains of ancient civilization, but of small size when compared with the great ruins of Assyria, rise amongst the hovels of the Kurdish peasants. After we had crossed the parched and burning plain, we entered a valley in the Kurdish hills, watered by a stream called Melik or Gerasim. We had to climb over much broken ground, rocky ridge and ravine, before reaching the slope of the mountain, covered with the gardens and orchards of Akra. We tarried for a moment at a cool spring rising in a natural grotto, and collected into two large basins. We had no difficulty in finding our European fellow-travellers. The first curd we met pointed towards a well-wooded garden, 
above its trees peered their white tents as we rode into it however no one came out to welcome us i entered the first tent and there stretched on their carpets in a state of half-consciousness the prey to countless flies lay the doctor and mr walpole it was with difficulty i could rouse them to learn the history of their fever the whole party were in the same state the servants prostrate like their masters i lost no time in enforcing a system of diet and placing my patients under a course of treatment for ague with which long experience had given me some acquaintance some days elapsed before my companions were able to journey i took advantage of the delay to visit some bas-reliefs near the neighbouring village of gunduk there are two sculptured tablets in the rocks above gunduk they have been carved at the mouth of a spacious natural cavern whose roof is fretted with stalactites and down whose sides trickles cool clear water and hang dank ferns and creeping plants it is called Gupa Dmar Johanna, or the cure of St. John, and near it is an ancient Nestorian church dedicated to St. Audicio. The bas-reliefs are Assyrian. The upper represents a man slaying a wild goat with a spear. In the lower, as far as I could distinguish the sculpture, which is high on the rock and much injured, are two women facing each other and seated on stools. Each holds a child above a kind of basin or circular vessel as if in the act of baptizing it behind the seated female to the left a figure bears a third child and is followed by a woman on the opposite side is a group of three persons apparently sacrificing an animal there are no traces of inscriptions on or near the tablets on the seventeenth july my companions were able to move to the higher mountains we all longed for a cooler climate and we rejoiced as at sunrise we left our garden a precipitous and a difficult path leads up the mountain. From the summit of the pass, the eye wanders over the plains of Navkur and Sheikhan, the broken hill country around Arvil, and the windings of the Zab and the Gazir. On the opposite side is a deep valley dividing the Akra hills from a second and loftier range. Through the valley ran a broad, clear stream, one of the confluents of the Zab, called by the Kurds Durusho or Bairaisho. We rode along its banks for nearly an hour, and then struck into a narrow gorge thickly wooded with oak. Another stony and precipitous pass was between us and the principal district of Zibari. Descending into the low country, we rode by the village of Birikapra, the residence of Mustafa Aga, the former head of the Zibari tribes. The present chief, Namet Aga, dwells at Heron, about two miles beyond. He had lately been at Mosul to receive from the pasha his cloak of investiture and during his visit had been my guest his abilities and acquirements were above the ordinary kurdish standard which indeed is low enough for as the arab proverb declares be the kurd a kurd or a prophet he will still be a bear he spoke persian with fluency and was not ignorant of arabic as he was well acquainted with the geography of kurdistan i learned from him many interesting particulars relating to the less known districts of the mountains the chief welcomed me with friendly warmth and although forbidden to eat himself he did not leave his guests uncared for the breakfast brought to us from his harem comprised a variety of sweetmeats and savoury dishes which did credit to the skill of the kurdish ladies i was the bearer of a letter to him from the pasha no acceptable communication however as it treated of new taxes a subject very generally disagreeable upon tobacco cotton and fruit 
which the Zibari Kurds were now called upon for the first time to pay. The salient, too, a kind of property tax, was raised from twenty-five to sixty thousand piastres, about five hundred and fifty pounds. The late successful expeditions against the chiefs of Bohtan and Hakiari had encouraged the porter to ask money of the previously independent tribes on Namet Aga, and although no Turkish troops had yet entered their mountains, the Kurds deemed it advisable to comply for the present with the demand rather than run the risk of an invasion and a still more dreaded evil, the conscription. Namet Aga's authority extended over Zibari, Shirwan, Gerti, Barredost, and Shembina, from Accra to the Persian frontier. These districts are occupied by different Kurdish tribes, each having its own chief, but they had then submitted to the Aga of Zibari, and paid their tribute through him to the governor of Mosul. Namet placed me under the protection of his cousin, Mullah Aga, who was ordered to escort us to the borders of the Bashalik of Hakiari, now occupied by the Turkish troops. Our guide was a tall, sinewy mountaineer, dressed in the many-coloured loose garments and huge red and black turban folded round the high, conical felt cap, which gives a peculiar and ungainly appearance to the inhabitants of central Kurdistan. He was accompanied by three attendants, and all were on foot, the precipitous and rocky pathways of the mountains being scarcely practicable for horses, which are rarely kept but by the chiefs. They carried their long rifles across their shoulders, and enormous daggers in their girdles. We left Heren early on the morning of the 19th, and soon reaching the Zab, rode for two hours along its banks, to a spot where a small raft had been made ready for us to cross the stream. We had some difficulty in crossing, and were compelled to pass the night in the small village of Rezan, near the ferry, as one of the baggage mules refused to swim the stream, and was not forced over until near dawn of the following morning. We now entered the tract which has probably been followed for ages by the mountain clans in their periodical migrations. Besides the sedentary population of these districts, there are certain nomad Kurdish tribes, called Kochas, who subsist entirely by their flocks. They are notorious petty thieves and robbers, and during their annual migrations commit serious depredations upon the settled inhabitants of the district on their way, and more especially upon the Christians. As they possessed vast flocks of sheep and herds of cattle, their track has in most places the appearance of a beaten road, and is, consequently, well fitted for beasts of burden. On the 21st July, crossing a high ridge, we left the district of Zibari, and entered that of Shirwan, whose chief, Miran Bey, came out to meet us at the head of his armed retainers. He led us to the large village of Berziyah, situated beneath a bold and lofty peak called Piran. Most of the villages in these mountains have small mud forts, with either four or six towers, the places of refuge and defence of the numerous petty chiefs during their frequent broils and blood feuds. We met a few Jewish families who wander from village to village. The men are peddlers and goldsmiths, and are not unwelcome guests, even in the intolerant families of the Kurds, as they make and refashion the ornaments of the ladies. On one of the many towering peaks is the large village of Kaniresh, with its orchards and gardens, the residence of the chief of the district of Baradost. We reached it by a very rapid ascent in an hour and a half. We were received by the Mir Fezula Bay, in a spacious chamber supported by wooden pillars and completely open on the side facing the valley, 
over which it commanded an extensive and beautiful prospect. Though quite restive under the Turkish control, he received Mullah Aga with civility, and read the letters of introduction from Namet Aga, of which I was the bearer. Like most of the mountain chiefs, he spoke Persian, the language used in Kurdistan, for all written communications, and in books, except the Quran and a few pious works, which are in Arabic. The Kurdish dialects are mere corruptions of the Persian, and are not, with rare exceptions, employed in writing. The Mir pressed me to pass the night with him as his guest, but after partaking of his breakfast, I continued my journey, and reached, by sunset, the small turreted stronghold of Beigishni. The next morning, we crossed one of the shoulders of the lofty peak of Ser-i-Resh into the valley of Chapata. We were met on the way by a party of Nestorians, who had come out to see me, headed by the brother of the Bishop of Gerdin. He walked by me as far as Zernin, the castle of the Kurdish chief, and then left a relation to guide us to the dwelling of the Bishop of Shemesdin, or Shandina. As usual, he complained of bitter oppression and injustice from the Kurdish mirs, who had lately driven a large part of the Christian population across the frontiers into Persia. After enjoying the hospitality of Yahya Bey, the mir of Gerdi, at the village of Rua, we left the naked hills which skirt the Assyrian plains and entered the wooded districts of Kurdistan. On the following day we journeyed through a valley thick with walnuts and other large trees, and followed the windings of a stream, called by the Kurds Shambok, one of the principal confluents of the Zab. We crossed it backwards and forwards by wicker suspension bridges, until we ascended through a forest of orchards watered by innumerable streamlets to Mira, the village of Moza Bay, the chief of Shandim. We pitched our tents near some springs on an open lawn, and waited the return of an aged servant who had been disturbed by the noise of our caravan and had undertaken to announce our arrival to his master. We had evidently to deal with a man of civilization and luxury, for the old Kurd shortly returned, followed by numerous attendants, bearing sherbets and various Persian delicacies, in china bowls. Moza Bey himself came to us in the afternoon, and his manners and conversation confirmed the impression that his breakfast had produced. Intercourse with Persia, beyond whose frontiers his own tribe sometimes wandered, had taught him the manners and language of his neighbours. He told me that he was descended from one of the most ancient of Kurdish families, whose records for many hundred years still exist, and he boasted that Sheikh Taha, the great saint, had deemed him the only chief worthy, from his independence of the infidel government of the Sultan, to receive so holy a personage as himself after the downfall of Beda Khan Bey. This Sheikh Taha, who, as the main instigator of many atrocious massacres of the Christians, and especially of the Nestorians, ought to have been pursued into the uttermost parts of the mountains by the Turkish troops, and hanged as a public example, was now suffering from fever. He sent to me for medicine, but as his sanctity would not permit him to see, face to face, an unbelieving Frank, and as he wished to have a remedy without going through the usual form of an interview with the doctor, I declined giving him any help in the matter. Moza Bey was at this time almost the only chief in Kurdistan who had not yet made a formal submission to the Turkish government. His territories were, therefore, a place of refuge for those fugitives who, less fortunate than himself, had been driven from their strongholds by the arms or intrigues of the porter. He bewailed the discords which severed the tribes, and made them an easy prey to the Osmanian. The Turks, wise in their generation, 
have pursued their usual policy successfully in Kurdistan. The dissensions of the chiefs have been fomented, and, thus divided, they have fallen one by one victims to treachery or to force. We rose early on the following day, and left Nira long before the population was stirring, by a very steep pathway, winding over the face of a precipice, and completely overhanging the village. Reaching the top of the pass, we came upon a natural carpet of alpine flowers of every hue, spread over the eastern declivity of the mountain. Leaving the caravan to proceed to our night's resting place, I turned down the valley with my companions to visit the bishop of Shemizden at his convent of Mar Hananisha. A ride of three quarters of an hour brought us to the episcopal residence. Mar Isha, the bishop, met me at some distance from it. He was shabbily dressed and not of prepossessing appearance, but he appeared to be good-natured and to have a fair stock of common sense. After we had exchanged the common salutations, seated on a bank of wild thyme, he led the way to the porch of the church. Ragged carpets and belts had been spread in the dark vestibule, in the midst of sacks of corns, gorgul, and other provisions for the bishop's establishment. Various rude agricultural instruments and spinning wheels almost filled up the rest of the room, for these primitive Christians rely on the sanctity of their places of worship for the protection of their temporal stores. The title of the bishop is Metropolitan of Rolstock, a name of which I could not learn your origin. His jurisdiction extends over many Nestorian villages, chiefly in the valley of Shemizden. Half of this district is within the Persian territories, and from the convent we could see the frontier dominions of the Shah. It is in the high road of the periodical migrations of the great tribe of Herki, who pass like a locust cloud twice a year over the settlements of the unfortunate Christians, driving before them the flocks, spoiling the granaries, and carrying away even the miserable furniture of the hovels. It is in vain that the sufferers carry their complaints to their Kurdish master. He takes from them double the lawful taxes and tithes. The Turkish government has in this part of the mountains no power, if it had the inclination, to protect its Christian subjects. After we had partaken of the frugal breakfast of milk, honey, and fruit prepared for us by the bishop, we turned again into the high road to Bashkala. We had another pass to cross before descending into the valley of Harona, where our caravan had encamped for the night. On the mountain top were several Nestorian families crouching, half naked, for shelter beneath a projecting rock. They seized the bridles of our horses as we rode by beseeching us to help them to recover their little property, which, but a few hours before, had been swept away by a party of Herki Kurds. I could do nothing for these poor people, who seemed in the last stage of misery. From the summit of the pass, we looked down into two deep and well-wooded valleys, hemmed in by mountains of singularly picturesque form. We descended into the more northern valley, and passing the miserable Nestorian hamlet of Solosor, and the ruined church and deserted Christian village of Talana, reached our tents about sunset. They were pitched near Harona, whose historian inhabitants were too poor to furnish us with even the common coarse black bread of barley. We had now quitted the semi-independent Kurdish valleys, and had entered the newly created province of Hakiari, governed by a pasha who resides at Bashkalah. The adjacent plain of Gar is, however, exposed to the depredations of the Herki Kurds, who, when pursued by the Turkish troops, seek a secure retreat in their rocky fastnesses beyond the limits of the Pashalik. The district contains many villages, inhabited by a hardy and industrious race of Nestorian Christians, 
The American missionaries of Oromia have crossed the frontier since my visit, and have, I am informed, opened schools in them with encouraging prospects of success. Gaur is an historian bishopric. A ride of six hours and a half brought us to the large village of Diza, the chief place of the district, and the residence of a Turkish mudir, or petty governor. This office was filled by one Adal Bey, with whom I found my old friend Ismail Aga of Tepelin, who had shown me hospitality three years before in the ruined castle of Amadia. He was now in command of the Albanian troops forming part of the garrison. A change had come over him since we last met. The jacket and arms which had once glittered with gold were now greasy and dull. His face was as worn as his garments. After a cordial greeting, he made me a long speech on his fortunes, and on that of Albanian irregulars in general. Ah, Bey, said he, the power and wealth of the Osmanlis is at an end. The Sultan has no longer any authority. The accursed Tanzimat reform has been the ruin of all good men. Why, see, Bey, I am obliged to live upon my pay. I cannot eat from the treasury, nor can I squeeze a piastre. What do I say a piastre? Not a miserable half-starved fowl out of the villages, even though they be Christians. Forsooth, they must talk to me about reform and ask for money. The Albanian's occupation is gone. Even Tafil Bosi, a celebrated Albanian condottiere, smokes his pipe and becomes fat like a Turk. It is the will of God. I have forsworn Raki. I believe in the Koran, and I keep Ramazan. The night was exceedingly cold. The change from the heat of the plains to the cool nights of the mountains had made havoc amongst our party. Nearly all our servants were laid up with fever, as well as the doctor and Mr. Walpole, who had rarely been free from its attacks during the journey. I could not, however, delay, and on the following morning our sickly caravan was again toiling over the hills. We had now entered the Armenian districts. The Christian inhabitants of Diza are of that race and faith. We encamped for the night at the Kurdish village of Peraunis. Next day, we forded a branch of the Zab, and entered the valley of this great confluent of the Tigris, its principal source being but a few miles to the north of us, near the frontiers of Persia. The land is so heavy that the rude plough of the country requires frequently as many as eight pairs of oxen. The Armenian ploughmen sit on the yokes, and whilst guiding or urging the beasts with a long iron-pointed goad, chant a monotonous ditty to which the animals appear so well accustomed that when the driver ceases from his dirge, they also stop from their labours. A dell near our path was pointed out to me as the spot where the unfortunate traveller Schultz was murdered by Nur Ullah Bey, the Kurdish chief of the Hakiari. Turning up a narrow valley towards the high mountains, we suddenly came in sight of the castle of Bashkala, one of the ancient strongholds of Kurdistan. Its position is remarkably picturesque. It stands on a lofty rock, jutting out from the mountains which rise in a perpendicular wall behind it. At the foot are grouped the houses of a village. I found Izet Pasha encamped at a considerable elevation in the rocky ravine, which we reached, guided by kawases carrying huge glass lanterns, by a very precipitous and difficult track. I remained with him until the night was far advanced, and then returned to our encampment. He informed me that there was a direct road from Bashkalah to Mosul for forty hours, through Beit Daudiah, and Dohuk, which, with very little labour and expense, could be made practicable for guns. Bashkala was formerly the dwelling-place of Nur-Ulukh Bey, 
a Kurdish chief well known for his rapacious and bloodthirsty character, and as the murderer of Shuls. He joined Beda Khan Bey in the great massacres of the Nestorians, and for many years sorely vexed those Christians who were within his rule. After a long resistance to the troops of the Sultan, he was captured about two years before my visit, and banished for life to the islands of Kandia. My companions and servants being much in want of rest, I stopped today at Bashkalah. On resuming our journey, we took a direct, though difficult, track to one, only open in the middle of summer. Following a small stream, we entered a ravine leading into the very heart of the mountains. Three hours' ride, always rapidly ascending along the banks of the rivulet, brought us to a large encampment. The features of the women and of the men, who came out of their tents as we rode up, as well as the tongue in which they addressed one another, showed at once that they were not Kurds. They were Jews, shepherds and wanderers, of the stock, maybe, of those who, with their high priest, Hyrcanus, were carried away captive from Jerusalem by Tigranes in the second century of our era, and placed in the city and neighbourhood of one. Their descendants, two hundred years later, were already so numerous that Shapur, Sapores, the second, destroyed no less than ten thousand families in one alone. We encamped near the Jewish nomads, and I visited their tents, but could learn nothing of their history. They fed their flocks, as their fathers had done before them, in these hills, and paid taxes to the governor of Bashkalah. We had now reached the higher regions of Kurdistan. Next morning, we soon left the narrow, flowery valley and the brawling stream, and entered an undulating upland, covered with deep snow, considerably more than ten thousand feet above the level of the sea. On all sides of us were towering peaks, and to the west, a perfect sea of mountains, including the lofty ranges of Hakiari and Bohdan. Far away to the north was the azure basin of Lake Wan, and beyond it rose the solitary white cone of the Subandar. Descending rapidly, and passing near the foot of the mountain, one or two miserable, half-deserted Kurdish hamlets, we entered a long, narrow ravine, shut in by perpendicular cliffs of sandstone and conglomerate. This outlet of the mountain streams opens into the valley of Mahmudiyah, in the centre of which rises an isolated rock crowned by the picturesque castle of Koshab. We pitched our tents on a green lawn near the bank of the foaming stream which sweeps round the foot of the castellated rock. Soon after our arrival, a Kurdish bay of venerable appearance a descendant of the hereditary chiefs of Mahmudiyah, called upon me. He had once been the owner of the castle, but it had been wrested from him by two brothers, named Khan Murad and Khan Abdal, mere mountain robbers. In his stronghold the brothers long defied the Turkish government, levying blackmail upon such caravans as ventured to pass through their territories, and oppressing with fines and forced conversions their Christian subjects. It was but the year before our visit that they had yielded to the troops sent against them, and had been sent into banishment, with the rest of the rebel chiefs, to Kandia. With the Kurdish bay came one Ahmed Aga, a chief of the large border tribe of Mogri, an intelligent man who conversed freely on the state of the country, and gave me some interesting information regarding the frontiers. The fear of conscription has driven many families into Persia, and into the more independent districts of Kurdistan. On the whole, the wandering tribes are becoming less formidable to the porter than they formerly were. To the east of the district of Mahmudiyah, and in that of Karasol, are many Yezidi villages, and a considerable Jewish population. 
both races are much oppressed by the Kurdish chiefs, who take their property and even their lives with perfect indifference. The Kadis, as Ahmed Aga informed me, have given fetwas, decrees, that both were lawful to the true believer. We rose early next morning and went up to the castle. It is falling into ruins, though its towers still rise boldly from the edge of the precipice, overhanging at a giddy height the valley below. In them, open to the cool breezes of the mountain, are the dwelling rooms of the old Kurdish chiefs, adorned with tasteful lattice work and with the painted panellings and gilded cornices of Persia. They are now tenanted by the Turkish troops, whose bright arms and highly polished kitchen utensils hang on the gaudy walls. After drinking coffee and smoking pipes with the captain of the guard, we walked down the narrow pathway leading to the valley, and, mounting our horses, joined the caravan, which had preceded us on the road to Wan. On the following morning we crossed this valley to Norchuk, on the outskirts of which I was met by the priest at the head of the inhabitants. A range of low hills now separated us from the plain and lake of Wan. We soon reached their crest, and a landscape of surpassing beauty was before us. At our feet, intensely blue and sparkling in the rays of the sun, was the inland sea, with the sublime peak of the Subandar, mirrored in its transparent waters. The city, with its castle-crowned rock and its embattled walls and towers, lay embowered in orchards and gardens. To our right, a rugged snow-capped mountain opened midway into an amphitheatre, in which, amidst lofty trees, stood the Armenian convent of Yediklisia, the seven churches. To the west of the lake was the Nimrod Dar, and the highlands nourishing the sources of the great rivers of Mesopotamia. The hills forming the foreground of our picture were carpeted with the brightest flowers over which wandered the flocks, whilst the gaily dressed shepherds gathered around us as we halted to contemplate the enchanting scene. We now descended rapidly towards one, and as we issued into the plain, a party of horsemen galloped towards us. I soon recognised amongst them my friend Mr. Bowen. With him were the Kawasbashi and a troop of irregular cavalry sent out by the Pasha to escort me into the city. Nor did the governor's kindness end with this display of welcome. After winding for nearly an hour through orchards and gardens whose trees were bending under the weight of fruit, and when through the narrow and crowded streets we were led to his serai or palace, which, such as it was, had been made ready for our use, and where his treasurer was waiting to receive us. Notwithstanding the fast, an abundant breakfast of various meats and sweet messes, cooked after the Turkish fashion, had been prepared for us, and we soon found repose upon a spacious divan, surrounded by all the luxuries of Eastern life. End of chapter 17 Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth